Were you ready for this? A lot of our leaders and public influencers today are fools and demons. A lot of them are. Not every single one of them to be sure, but enough of them to help create the kind of cultural crisis that we are in right now. A lot of the things that we thought were unthinkable or unspeakable are just commonplace now in just about every facility. Things we thought that were beyond the pale even just three years ago have actually become old-fashioned now. This kind of slide is going at such a quick pace. Now, there are a lot of reasons for this kind of quick decline in our culture in its moral decline, its intellectual decline, its spiritual decline. There are a lot of reasons for this. But one of them is that there is a serious lack of God-honoring, courageous leadership in our culture. There's a serious lack of it. And it isn't just out there. It's not just that we in the church can kind of sit here and go, yeah, that person and that person and that person, not just out there in politics and law and media and pop culture. It has also found its way inside of the church, a lack of God-honoring and courageous leadership right now. So this is a big deal, and the question that we asked this morning is, does Scripture have anything to say about these kinds of things? So we find ourselves in Titus chapter 1 this morning. And part of what we're going to read is this, and it has to do with just Paul's missionary journeys, the group of people that he has with him, and how they plant churches and encourage churches and shuffle each other, and he assigns them different places. That's part of what happens here in Titus chapter 1. You see, Paul has assigned Titus, this young pastor, to the island of Crete in order to put the church in order. This includes the lifestyles of the Christians there. Uh, These are first-generation Christians. These are adult Christians, many of them. So they've lived a very different kind of life before they got saved, and now they've been introduced to the kingdom of God, and Christ is regenerating their hearts, and they're becoming different kinds of people. So part of what Titus does is he encourages this new way of life, but in chapter 1, what Paul wants Titus to do is to encourage a new kind of leadership inside of the church. So let's recall the three major sections of Titus chapter, chapters 1, 2, and 3. In chapter 1, it is a new kind of leadership. In chapter 2, it's a new kind of home. And in chapter 3, it's a new kind of life. That's the theme that holds this book together. We talked about this a little bit last week as we introduced the book and went through the introduction But Crete has this reputation for, it is in Paul's day, a violent and a sexually immoral culture. So the Christians are being saved out of that way of life. And so now, if we just kind of want to put it in a nutshell, they need to learn the way of Jesus instead of the way of Zeus. Now remember in Greek mythology, Crete is where Zeus comes from. So it was uh, the patron god of, he was the patron god of the island of Crete. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, that's not good for anybody. So now they're learning the way of Jesus instead of the way of these immoral, deceitful Greek gods. And we also know this. We know this, I think, just intuitively 
I think we know this just as a result of the way that things go in our lives right now. A debauched and a debased culture is going to produce leaders of the same kind. What else could it possibly produce? So the Christian church produces a very different kind of person, different kind of life, a different kind of leadership. So as a result of all of these kinds of things, Paul wants Titus to put things in order. The way that Paul puts it is interesting. It sounds as if these things have started, as if the church has you know, uh, been established and there are pockets of small churches, but it hasn't quite been put in order yet. They haven't had the direction that they needed. So this is why Paul gives this assignment to Titus. So here are the thoughts that are going to help us hold together the rest of chapter 1 this morning. And the first is this. The church needs spiritual leadership. This feels really straightforward, but it's important for Paul. Remember, this is the early church. We're still in the first generation of believers, and they're creating this order for the church. So the church needs spiritual leadership. Scripture is clear. Every single one of us is an important part of the body of Christ. Paul, in another letter, uses that language. Every one of us is is an eye and a mouth, a hand and a foot. We all have a role to play. But he wants to make sure that there's spiritual leadership in place that is Christ-honoring. So this is important for the new church because they're just getting started. This is important for the American church because there's just a, a raft of American Christians who believe that they don't need the spiritual structure and authority of a church. They're just fine without you, thank you very much. It's just unbiblical. There's just nothing in the New Testament that comprehends a Christian without a connection to the body of believers. So the church needs spiritual leadership. And we need Christ-like leadership. Not the kind of authority or leadership that the culture wants to create, but we have to be deliberate about what happens inside of the church being Christ-like. As he does in several other passages in the New Testament, Paul here in Titus chapter 1 is going to list the qualifications for church leaders. And all of it has to do with lives that look more like Christ and less like sin. These are the qualifications. Is Christ in this heart? Is Christ in this home? Is Christ in this life? We need Christ-like leadership. And then the third thought is this, and this is what's going to occupy the last section of Titus chapter 1. Church leaders are intended to confront falsehood. In fact, this is one of the themes in the New Testament letters. That there is always, there are always false teachers and false teachings out there that want to tear the church apart. And one of the things a good leader does is that good leader protects the flock and that good leader defends the truth of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that here in the book of Titus. So let's begin reading Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Here's what the word of the Lord says. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul speaking to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, 
a husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, God's leadership takes care of God's stuff. It's not our stuff, it's God's stuff. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. Let me remind you of what I need you to do. I need you to put what remains, or what has been sort of scattered over the island of Crete, I need you to put that in order. And we need to appoint elders, we need to appoint overseers, and this is who these leaders inside of the church are. And this kind of structure is actually still important for the way that the, the, the church works today. We mentioned this briefly last time, but when Paul in the ESV uses the word for elder, it's the Greek word where we get our word for presbyter or presbyterian. So if you've ever come from a Presbyterian church or denomination, you know that the hierarchy of the denomination is often broken up into presbyteries, areas and areas, different areas around the country, and so you've got to have that hierarchy. For a little while, and I don't mean to brag, but I was a presbyter in our denomination. It's not a brag. <laughs> and so I you know, fulfilled a certain kind of role for the denomination for a little while because we have our own structure as well. In the ESV, a little bit later on, a couple verses later, he uses the word overseer, and he's talking about the same thing. But there he uses the Greek word from which we get our word for episcopalian or episcopate. So we still use this language to help give us structure to the way churches and pastors work and the way that denominations work and so forth. Because this kind of spiritual leadership in a certain kind of hierarchy for the church is important to Paul, important to the New Testament church, and important to us. Titus is an interim pastor and teacher. That's his role. He's going to be on this island for a little while. So this is his job, to give strength to each church by appointing the right kinds of leaders in all of these young and sometimes very small groups of believers. So the first thought, friends, is this, and again, it's very straightforward. A healthy church requires healthy spiritual leadership. Paul does not talk to any church as if there are no spiritual leaders, as if this is not important. Every church that he writes to, it's assumed as important inside of that letter or it's expressly taught about as if it is important inside of that letter. It's important for Paul that this exists and this exists well so that they can flourish and fulfill the role that God has called them to fulfill, both as spiritual leaders and as a church inside of their culture and inside of their community. And a quick glance at even just a few of the New Testament epistles make this clear. 
At the end of the book of Romans, the, the letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome, he sends greetings from and he talks about the various leaders in the church, some of whom travel from church to church and area to area that are known to the Christians in Rome. In the book of Corinthians, he talks about the importance of the whole body of believers. But he praises several other apostles and leaders, Apollos and Peter and others. But then in Corinthians, because Paul started the church and spent so much time there, he claims this unique kind of relationship that he has with the church. He says, you are my spiritual letter to the Lord. So he holds this special role of spiritual leadership for the church in Corinth. In the book of Galatians, and this is interesting, Paul connects the truth and the importance of the gospel to the fact that he spoke it and that he received it from the Lord. God gave it to me, I gave it to you. That's why you need to listen to me, because I listened to God. Paul talks about this in the book of Galatians. In Ephesians, Paul lists several gifts of leadership that God gave the church, and he says that all of them are for the health and the protection and the maturity of the church. And on and on it goes in every one of these letters to churches in the New Testament. So all of the spiritual leadership is for the sake of the church. It serves the kingdom of God. And it's for the sake of the flourishing of the people of God. In our culture, we've got some things wired backwards when it comes to what roles of influence are for, what roles of leadership are for. I want to make something clear, too. The more we talk about this, I'm not just talking about CEOs and presidents. I'm talking about Christians who walk into their job on Monday morning as Christians and have any kind of level of influence or leadership at all. I'm talking about moms and dads. I'm talking about grandmas and grandpas. I'm talking about students that walk into school and they have a certain kind of influence. This belongs to us in the roles that God has given us. But our culture has some of these important concepts exactly backwards. Most people nowadays use their positions of leadership and influence to perform, to say, look at me, pay attention to me, pay me and help me reach the next level. These, these positions of leadership and influence are performative and they serve themselves through these positions. Now listen to this. Christ calls us to influence in order to conform to Christ and to serve others. Christ does not give us positions of leadership and influence so that we can perform and make ourselves greater. He gives us these positions so that we look more like Christ and we serve others and we serve the church, we serve our families, and we serve the purposes of the kingdom of God. Biblical leadership isn't given to gain advantage but to exercise responsibility. Does that make sense? It isn't given so that one person can gain advantage on the backs of another group of people, but so that someone can exercise divinely given responsibility on behalf of the kingdom of God. With the rise of social media has come another term in our language. 
You're going to learn a new piece of vocabulary this morning. It's called the neologism, a brand new word. Everyone say neologism. Now you can impress your friends and family with this later on this week. An influencer. An influencer is just someone who has a lot of people who watch them on social media. And so they possess a certain kind of influence. Some of them possess a certain kind of leadership. But why are they doing it? So that they can be seen by more people. More likes, more views, more shares, blah, 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 blah. Christ calls us to exercise any influence we have with the responsibility of becoming more like Christ and serving others and serving the purposes of the kingdom of God. As a result of these kinds of truths, the list of qualifications for Christian leadership are different than what a lot of people think about the qualifications for leadership. Paul begins, if anyone is above reproach, a husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to debauchery, the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer's God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, and on it goes. This entire list that he gives us here, as well as in a few other places in the New Testament, boils down to two big ideas. Is the kingdom of God in this home and can others see Christ in this person? That's what these lists boil down to. The details are important. The individual items are important. That's the, those are the big ideas that I think this boils down to. Is, is the kingdom of God in this home, and can others see Christ in this person? This entire list for Paul and for, Ti Paul and for Titus, it runs counter to the culture of the island of Crete. It's a little bit like Paul saying, those that have been saved into the church, the life that they used to live was like this. They have these kinds of habits. They have these habits in their finances. They have these habits in their family. They have these kinds of dysfunctional habits in their relationships. But now they're in the church and they're being transformed by Jesus Christ. So now we need people who no longer do this, but instead are like this. So it runs counter to the culture around them. And I think as we read this list through those lenses, it's clear to believe, I think it's easy to believe, that it runs counter for us as well. That a lot of these things are actually valued one way or another in the world outside of the church, inside of the church, it's different. This list describes a new kind of leadership that the church needs and the new kind of leadership that the church creates. Now, this list belongs to all Christians. These things, as they come alive in us or are actually destroyed in us, the sin is put to death in us, they signal our obedience to Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit amongst us. So Paul is several things specifically. He says, above reproach, and a husband of one wife, a man of integrity, he says, their moral character in public is the same as their moral character in private. And especially in the Cretan culture, and in our culture as well, when he says a husband of one wife, he's saying especially 
He's not a philanderer. He's not an adulterer. He's not a polygamist. That was a big deal in Crete as well. But instead, he's conforming to God's model of the home and of the family and of marriage. And that the children in this home are being raised to love and honor Christ. They're being raised to reflect the kingdom of God instead of being raised to reflect the values of the world around them. You know what that's like, Cretans. You grew up that way. Your children are going to grow up a different way. We're going to teach them to love Christ. We're going to teach them to live a different kind of life. Instead of the debauchery that surround us, we're going to live in the moral purity and holiness that belongs to Jesus. The elder, the overseer, the spiritual leader needs to be, and he says this in verses 7 and 8. We kind of summarize some of it like this. Needs to be humble. Oh, my goodness. We say this from time to time, and I I think it's important to say, humility is always an open door between you and Jesus Christ. Pride is always a closed door. Always a closed door. A spiritual leader needs to be humbled, self-controlled in every conceivable way, able to show kindness. Hospitality is important to Paul when he gives us these kinds of lists. Someone who loves the things of God, reads the word of God and not just knows it and can quote it back, but is attached to it in their passions and emotions and affections. They love the things of God. And they love a life, or they live a life of discipline. It's another one that I could get grumpy about for a little while this morning. But living a life of discipline. Living a life of discipline. So we see that the church needs these qualities. The church needs these qualities. One particular author who writes about leadership, I think, pretty well, he says that leadership is the art of defining the future. Here's what it needs to look like. Here's where we can go. Here are the kinds of things that we can do. It's it's a certain mode of defining the future in a certain kind of way. Now, if that's true on any level whatsoever, we want these kinds of people telling us what life can look like. We don't want those kinds of people telling us what life needs to look like tomorrow. And the church needs the next wave of these kinds of Christians. So when we think of church leadership and when we think of spiritual leadership, we can't just have in our minds those of us who have more gray in our beard now than we did a year ago. I know some of you tell me I see it in the mirror every day. Gray in the hair, getting older, long in the tooth, however you want to put it. The church needs the next wave of these individuals becoming leaders inside of the church, leaders inside of their homes, leaders in their schools, leaders in the places that they work. The Apostle Paul says something that if you don't understand it, it sounds profoundly arrogant. He says it to the Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's not arrogance. That's holy fear. 
I need you to follow the responsible leaders, Christ-like leaders who are around you, but only in so far as they look like Christ. But when you find those people, follow them in those ways. Pattern yourself. Walk after them. Learn from them. The Corinthians had all kinds of things that they had wrong, and so the Apostle Paul has to say, I need you to be imitators of me, but only insofar as I am an imitator of Jesus Christ. The church needs these qualities in its ranks. So it needs it, but then, as we mentioned earlier, the church actually helps to create these qualities. This is one of the things that the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a faithful church, in a faithful home, out of the mouths of faithful Christians, this is one of the things that this does, is it helps to create these qualities. It takes people who are arrogant and quick-tempered, drunk, violent, greedy, sexually immoral, all of these things he lists and exposes them to the transforming power of Jesus Christ. This is part of what the church does. I love how Paul puts it again in 1 Corinthians. It's chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is what exposure to the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It saves souls and it transforms lives. And it begins to create what it needs. And it begins to create in the lives of people what the culture around us needs. Paul says near the end of the passage that we read, speaking of these leaders, these elders, these overseers, he says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word. A spiritual leader knows the word of God, is able to explain and apply it, and believes it is better than every other alternative explanation of the human condition. I need you to pay attention to that last phrase. Spiritual leader knows the word of God. He said earlier, loves the good things of God. Is able to explain it. Is able to help people apply it. But here's also part of what that means. Spiritual leader actually believes that the word of God, the things of God, the truth of God is better than every other alternative explanation for the human condition. How do we fix what's wrong? Let's just ask a great big giant question like that. How do we fix what's wrong? How do we understand what's wrong? Well, here it is, friends. The best, most sufficient explanation of the human condition and how Christ fixes it. And the spiritual leader believes profoundly and firmly that this is the best explanation. And quite honestly, in the last... Two and a half years. A lot of pastors, a lot of Christians, a lot of churches, and a lot of denominations have stumbled at exactly this point. It turns out 
They may not have known the word of God at all. Turns out they may not have understood it at all. And it turns out that a lot of them have believed that, well, the culture's answers to our questions are the best possible explanation for the human condition, not the word of God. Pastors and churches and Christians and denominations have stumbled at exactly this point. But Paul says these are the kinds of spiritual leaders the church needs. These are the kinds of characters that Christ creates and puts inside of the church so that there is health and strength and a robust gospel presence in a community. This is what God is creating. One of the reasons he does this in the church, one of the reasons he needs these kinds of people is that there's always falsehood knocking at the door of the church. And they have to be able, he says, to deal with falsehood, to expose it, to explain it, to put it in its place. He says at the very end of verse 9, so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradicted. He goes on to say this beginning in verse 10 of Titus chapter 1. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a poet of their own, said, and he quotes from a guy by the name of um, (laughs) Epimenides. There it is. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, he says. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul pulls no punches, does he? For there are many, he says, we need these kinds of people helping to give shape to the church, lead the church, because there are many who are insubordinate. There are many who've turned away from the truth. There are many who are teaching things that actually tear families apart, so we need to shut them up. This is the kind of thing that Paul is saying. So Paul talks about in this passage two sources of conflict for the church in Crete. There are those who are coming from the Cretan culture itself, and he talks about what that is like. And then he also says those of the circumcision party, and he is speaking of Jewish leaders or um, Jewish leaders of one type or another who are trying to impose Old Testament law as well as extra-biblical Jewish myths upon the church. And Paul says he sees the Cretans as a threat to the order of the church, or at least that Cretan culture. They're always liars and lazy and gluttons. And notice this. He says, Titus, I need you to reprimand them. I need you to reprove them for what they are doing so that they may be stronger in the faith. Sometimes this is what has to happen. 
What you're teaching is wrong. Your way of lifestyle is actually destroying you and those around you. You need correction. You need direction so that you may be restored to the faith. Then instead of walking in darkness, we're going to show you the way of light one more time. So this is why he says, I need you to reprove them so they may be restored to the way of Jesus Christ. Some of these false teachers indulge in Jewish myths in the Old Testament law, both of which... As Paul says over and over again in his letters, pull people away from the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul actually warns the church against these kinds of teachers several times. The myths are spiritual falsehoods, and then they preach the law as opposed to gospel. Christ says he came to fulfill the law. We're not bound by it, and yet these Jewish leaders come by. They're part of the circumcision party. He says, you must do this, 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 and this. And Paul says, we can't allow that inside of the church. And he says this really interesting thing inside of that context. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. Let's see here, where is that? Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are pure. Defiled. Paul's immediate meaning here inside of this passage is about those Old Testament purity laws. This is the group of people that he's talking about. The irony is that the false Jewish teachers, though they're teaching Old Testament purity, are morally defiled. So it doesn't matter what they do according to the purity laws of the Old Testament because their hearts are defiled. All of it is defiled. The act of trying to purify yourself on the outside, a whitewashed tomb in Jesus' words, doesn't make you pure. But it's what Christ does inside of us that makes us pure. And then he says, but even their minds and their consciences are defiled. Both their minds and their morals are defiled. It reminded me of a passage in the book of Isaiah. Some of you are maybe thinking about it right now. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. How many of you look at the culture around you every now and then and you think to yourself, how can someone believe that's good? Well, this is just part of what the sinful heart does. It exchanges truth for falsehood and right for wrong and good for true and darkness for light. It just makes these kinds of exchanges. He says some others are teaching merely for their own shameful gain. The money motive never really has changed. Notoriety, money, influence, all of them are good reasons for Christians to be wary. So we need to hear this because there are people who used to be among us and are no longer among us because they decided that somebody who has a really big popular YouTube channel is better than any pastor that they know. And it turns out that that really big popular YouTube channel is just flat out heresy. It doesn't matter how popular a teacher is. It doesn't matter how much gain they have gotten for themselves. None of, them that, none of that makes them right. What makes them right? That they are stewards of God's gospel. That's what it's about. Again, we don't do these things for notoriety, for performative reasons to make ourselves greater, but to become more like Christ and to serve the kingdom of God. And he says, false teaching causes division in families. This 
This is such an interesting part of this passage to me. He says they're upsetting whole families. So we need to oppose what they are teaching. There's always bad teaching about families. What constitutes a family? How a family behaves? Many other religions and many other ideologies just simply get the family wrong. And it causes all kinds of destruction and division between parents and children, and it is painful to the very core. One such powerful ideology that's, that's at work inside of our culture right now, and if you follow the news, you probably see and hear some of this kind of stuff. Some of you folks have seen this kind of thing often enough that you've just quit watching the news, and I get that, I really do. But one such powerful ideology like this at work in our culture right now is the belief that children belong to the state and not to moms and dads. And that's not inference on my part, that's stated by elected officials in our nation right now. That parents do not have the right to know the curriculum their kids are being taught in schools because kids belong to schools and they don't belong to parents. What does Paul say about an ideology that causes division like that inside of the family? He says you need to oppose it. You need to say that it's wrong. So there's always bad teaching about what the family looks like. And there's always bad teaching that captures families. The whole family is turned away from Christ and pulled into some kind of false teaching. And especially in the Cretan culture, uh, it allowed for polygamy and illicit sexuality. And we'll see more of that as we go through the book of Titus. And all of these things create the kind of pain and dysfunction inside of a home and a family that causes division and hurt and pulls people away from Jesus Christ. So one of the things Paul is trying to communicate to all of us is that a good spiritual leader protects God's design for the family and points out the false teaching that tears them apart. And how much more important is that now with every passing day? There's so much confusion about men and women and moms and dads and kids. It says near the end of this passage that, now look, they profess to know God, but their deeds tell you differently. Throwing around the word God, throwing around the word Christian, saying, I am Christian, I do this, I do this, I believe this, or using scripture to make your point in public, does not make you Christian, and it does not make you a reliable spiritual leader. Just saying that. What Paul is saying is, watch what they do. Because what they truly believe is going to come out of the decisions they make, the things that they promote. They say they know God, but they don't. And that's a deception that was at play 2,000 years ago. It's a deception that's still at play today. Our Tuesday nights, by the way, are very interesting. I'd encourage you to come on our Tuesday nights. We spend our first 20 minutes or so doing kind of a, a worldview review from a Christian point of view, and then we use Scripture to kind of dovetail with all of that, and we're doing that a lot now on Tuesday nights, and recently we, we looked at a billboard uh, for a governor here uh, in, in the United States, uh, and he was promoting his stance, his, his radical pro-abortion stance, by using Scripture that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, 
And that was his, that was his justification for being pro-abortion. Don't let stuff like that fool you. There was another gubernatorial candidate just this last week who used the golden rule to support trans ideology and the surgical mutilation of preteens. Why would you use the golden rule to do that? Because there are still people who are deceived by those who say they know God but actually don't. And Paul says, don't fall for it. We can't be captured by the words that people use. We will know them by their fruits, to use the words of Christ. So friends, the church needs leaders who are men and women of integrity, who love God, and who love the things of God. The biblical standards for leadership, the biblical standards for influence, it's not money and networking and power and manipulation. Biblical leadership is about people willing to grow more like Christ and who are ready to put themselves on the line for truth. That's what we've been reading. I need you to put the church in order by making sure the leaders in those churches look like this, that their lives have changed from all of that and they're looking more and more like Christ all the time. And not just that they and their lives are like this, but they love the things of God so much and they know it so well that they're actually able to put themselves out there in defense of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are the kinds of things that belong to biblical leadership. So the church needs this, and our culture desperately needs it too. Our congregation may or may not have the next president of the United States in it. Maybe not. But here's what we do have. We have the next wave of moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas. We have the next set of computer engineers and electricians. The next set of college students and authors. The next set of businessmen and women and teachers. We may have the next set of school board members and county commissioners. We have the next set of small group leaders, missionaries, and pastors among us. And so, all of us now have a portfolio. Here's what God wants from us. Here's the life that God is building inside of us and calling of us, each of us to live. And we have a calling. We have a mission. I need you to love the truth. I need you to spread the truth. I need you to defend the truth. So Christ is calling every one of us to be more like him so that we can be lights and leaders who are more like him instead of more like the rest of the world. Christ is calling us, all of us, to safeguard the church, to defend her. Christ gave his life for her. And so we safeguard the church, the family, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, whether they know it or not, whether they want it or not, the people around us need this. The world needs this more than ever.